Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 88. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed and distinguished author and former Vermont Attorney General, Kimberly Cheney. Kim, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, Barney. Glad to be here. And you're here. You just uh, you just recently published, as of last February, um, uh, a book of uh, uh, a memoir book. I did, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that, and and uh, and also too is like you 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 also published you also published a book, uh, but I don't think we need to really talk dig dig too deep on your dig dig too deep on your labor and employment law in Vermont that you published in 1994. Probably not. Or <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting first effort. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, who uh, won the, uh, oh goodness, the Children's Book Award, uh, little, sorry, popped in, yeah. and yeah. I told her I was working on that book, and she said, well, Kim, you have to set aside a certain point in time every day to work on it. Okay. Do it. Right. So Thursdays were my writing day. And Thursdays were your writing day. Okay. That's my editorial day i guess <laughs> and so how so cuz you 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 put you, when you put this you you put this book out and we'll talk a little bit we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it too um your so did you start working on this after retirement when you retired in 2018 or had you been working on this for a while before that yes I, in in that sense i think um the beginning of any book is a story that's kicking around in your head. And mm. sometimes it has different chapters and sometimes a couple stand out. And I became, as I got older and wondered what life was all about, I said, well, it's only about stories. There, there is no other if you ever meet anybody, you ask them what happened, they'll tell you a story. Right. Very few people go off and tell you about uh, being converted by reading St. Thomas Aquinas and the rest of it. They might do that, but usually it's a story of some life event that they want you to know about. Right. Well, they were rattling around in my head. And do you have, and, and so, Kind of so. Right now, your your book's available. As we said, it's on. Um, you can visit like on, on Rootstock Publishing, um, RootstockPublishing.com, which is you get this published. So when you initially were looking at getting this book, when you started working on the draft, at what point did you say, "All right, so I got something here. Uh, how do I get it published? How was? How did you?" How did you get that ball rolling on getting uh, the book actually in, into like into book format instead of you know off of the screen? Well, I think anybody that starts writing a book first has a story to tell and they want to tell it. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> like most of my stories, when I 
begin talking about them, I like them more and more. <laughs> you become infatuated with your own stories. So, and then you work on it. And I've been writing all my life. And uh, essays and expository pieces mainly. Mm. So when I came to be a publisher, uh, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who had published a book and um, I asked him how he did it and he said rootstock and I put, I don't know, I solicited a few, but rootstock was local in Montpelier and I had people that were familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I do every day. It's a whole other industry and a whole other way of life and and not something to do if you've never ever done it before. Although I made a history of doing things I've never ever done before. <laughs> that wasn't what I wanted to take on. <laughs> and so when you when when you put this book when you're as you're as you're working on this book, what was what were some of the things where you knew as, as a memoir, what were some of those, um, those masthead points in your career that, you know, you, you have to dedicate, you know, a, a chunk of this, was there some parts on there that you said, listen, I got to make sure, um, this part stays in the book. Is there any of those issues that you put in there for? Well, if I like to collect glittering generalities in my spare time. So I think most people are interested in family and then they're interested in their career. Right. And those are the two things that really uh, determine a life. And since stories are all that life is about, I thought those would be good places to sort of write about. Right kind of a twin theme of my book. Right. And and so how can compare because as you mentioned before, you said like you'd write essays or, you know, as a, you know, as, you know, as a as a you know, as a lawyer and and, and you're you're not unfamiliar with the written word. How how much easier or was it more complicated a bit for you to write a memoir, an autobiography what were what's the differences between style, um, chore, and all those kind of issues of of writing these two separate types of prose, basically? Well, I think they're completely different. I think um, writing a memoir is sort of like this interview. Mm. You're sitting down with somebody and you're telling a story, and yet some experience with writing and vocabulary and different ways of expressing things uh, obviously come to mind. Mm. And uh, we all have echoes in our head of things we've read and things we liked and didn't like. And we don't even know how they got there, but there they are and you, and you use them. Right. But I think The thing that 
got me started, oddly enough, was a course in daily themes. It was like a sophomore year at Yale course. And the idea was every day you had to write about something. four or five paragraphs. And that was a challenge because you then look, I mean, I used to study my roommates. What the hell are they doing today? Why are they doing that? And uh, because you had to get something down on paper about an event. Right. And it was supposed to be artistic. You can't just say this happened, that happened. Right. You're supposed to have a point. <laughs> What's the point of writing something if you don't have a story? <laughs> um, I found that training for almost everything I did in life. Right. It, it, we talked earlier, in your old age, you look back and why am I doing this? And well, it goes back to seeing a scene at a meeting or something. And think about writing three or four paragraphs about who was being a jerk and who was making sense and what was the outcome, you know? Um, and I think that's the essence of storytelling. And it's it's a very different discipline than writing a legal brief right. from point to point yeah um, it, 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 it fascinates me too because as you when you're when you're sitting there writing like how much of how much of these individual individual kind of stories that kind of you know you know make the entire memoir because i'm looking at it, it's it's over 250 pages it's 262 pages so there's a there's a lot of book there which is there's a lot of stories is there was there some points where like you said, I love this. I love what happened to me here. Like there's like some great stories that you wanted to tell, but you, you had to try to find a way to, as you say, make a, like a moral to it or make a, a lesson out of it. Or did, so what were some of those, what were some of those stories that you just, um, you were excited to put down on paper? Well, if you read the book, they're all serendipity. Okay. You just don't know. You wander into a basket of thieves or saints and you don't know the outcome. <laughs> you're not quite sure how you got there and what you're supposed to do with it. But here's a set of circumstances that are alien to you. Right. And uh, something in your psyche challenges you to put it down. I think the story I tell about my first meeting with a county sheriff, we'd both been elected and I was state's attorney. And uh, I'd never been state's attorney. I'd never been a prosecutor. Did, Did a couple of criminal cases, but it was all pretty primitive. And he comes in and says, I heard this on the radio that there'd been a chase and a teen driver had come flying through town at some awful speed and he'd chased him and it resulted in a crash and the teener was uh, injured 
and the sheriff wanted me to bring various charges against him. And I asked them all about it, and I go into some detail in the book, and when I got all done, I said, you know, I don't know who was the villain of this story. Mm. We had a guy, irresponsible teenager, driving through town at 70, 80 miles an hour, and a sheriff chasing him, and it resulted in a crash. Right. And I said, well... And I don't know how I got this job, but somebody's asking me to say, who's the bad guy here? <laughs> the sheriff gave me the papers and asked me to sign a warrant. And I said, I put him on my desk. And he looked at me, he said, what are you doing? I said, I can't quite, quite figure out which one of you to charge. <laughs> and he didn't like that very much. And after he left and I thought about it, and I didn't like it very much. Right. But it was, it was true. This wild chases through town at any cost to catch the bad guy. Uh, there's got to be a better way, if at all possible. Mm. You know, there's a whole spectrum of possible things. Uh, how drunk is the guy, and who else is he going to kill if I don't stop him? And uh, what violent crime has he committed and will he get away? I mean, there's a whole panoply of serious stuff, but there still should be a process for trying to stop people and alerting them to put out spikes and whatever you do um, so we don't have wild chases that are going to hurt innocent people. And that was like my first or second day on the job, and I said, oh, this is interesting. I never had to think about these things before. I wonder what else is next. So there's the story. Right. And because you were a state's attorney, then you were the attorney general for Vermont from 73 to 75. Yes. Right. Okay. How was that different from, at, at, at what level did you, you know, because you're, you're a state's attorney for, for, for some years and then, was that also a level of serendipity? Did someone say, hey, you should run for attorney general? Or was that? Uh, no, I think it was ego. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're 38. You're Because you're pretty young. I mean, at 38. At yeah, well, I know I didn't want to make a career of being state's attorney. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating job. But it is kind of repetitive. And there was an opportunity, and I had a lot of support in the county, as I tell in the book. Um, and I, frankly, I enjoyed the uh, support I got from taking a different position on things. Um, and finding support and allies. Um, it's amazing when you get an electric job and you say, oh, I can do this, I can do that. <laughs> you know, what are the limits? What, right. what is it? Why are you here? What are you trying to do? There's a lot of important questions to ask. Right. And the attorney general job, of course, was 
totally new to me. And uh, but there's a learning curve there, and we they're both very complex stories. If you want to know more about them. And is there also a sense to you talk about this, like as a as an attorney general, is there a level of, you know, after the fact, is there a level of camaraderie or familiarness with other state attorney, like other attorney generals of the state? Do you, is there, was there like a handing over the baton of some sorts or were there any conversations you had with other attorney well, generals? Professor was Jimmy Jeffords. Yeah. Who had just lost uh, his bid for governor. And uh, so he was in private practice, biding his time to, for his next political adventure. Yeah. And uh, but I didn't have a lot of connection with him personally. We had met, and I think. Uh, had some confidence in each other and there wasn't any animosity. Right. Afterwards, I've enjoyed meeting with former attorneys general um, because we've all had a common experience. And that's interesting, but I think to me, finding myself in a environment that I read about and seen pictures of and read in the newspapers about, but then actually being responsible for uh, some decisions. Um, and you make your own opportunities right. or mistakes, whichever it is. And you spend some time chewing on them, and then there are external events that you have to respond to. Like my story about the sheriff that you, you just didn't anticipate. So what are you going to do with that? Here's here's an event right. that has political and practical significance. Right. And it's time to get your head around what makes sense. Right. And... Like any decision, there are going to be people say you're stupid and you're wrong. Right. <laughs> so it takes a certain good spot to just say, okay, I've thought this through. That's what I think is the best thing to do here. Right. So it's kind of like balancing that issues of like, you know, the bureaucracy and pragmatism in a way. And do you see your set? Do you see um, um, uh, as you're a, do you, uh, what points were you like, you know, in your career that you were, that that you mentioned in your memoir that you're you're really proud of. Well, I was the first full time state attorney in Washington County, and that's that's a big difference. Uh, it used to be part time jobs, and private lawyers would take them, but they they didn't get any extra pay for working hard, and they. I just didn't get hold of things. And, but once it's a full-time job, you get an opportunity to set a standard of how this is going to function. Right. What What is a premier job here? And uh, that's a very complex story, but um, 
I, I found early in life that politicians can do stupid things to get votes. Yeah. And in the long run, when you have the public responsibility, you have to keep an eye on what's best for the world that you want to live in. Not, not the public exactly, although hopefully they overlap. But, but the question is, what kind of world do you want to see happen here? And uh, what are you going to do to bring it about? Hmm. And I think the state's attorney job gave me a lot of opportunities to deal with issues like that and then figure out what made sense under a certain amount of pressure and then looking back on it and saying, well, okay, I came out okay on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or... Uh oh, maybe I could have done better next time. Yeah, because <laughs> you you when you were in your position, this was around as it, as we said from like seventy three to seventy five when Vermont itself was going through a st- the, the start of a culture shift from uh, and oh, was yeah. it around that time as well when they went from the House of Representatives and Vermont st- representatives was going from town specific representation to population was that around that time too. Yeah, the legislature had been reapportioned. Hmm. And uh, I think it was a renaissance in Vermont. And there were two things that went on, reapportionment and what we call the hippie migration, which I I was one of them. (laughs) Uh, But there was an in-migration into the state. Um, And there were a lot of so-called hippies and they wound up contributing a lot. They were, they were energetic and and interesting. And then, of course, there were a lot of professionals and other people who got sick of cities and wanted. And it was an optimistic time and a very the Vietnam War was going full more and Woodstock, you know, love and sex were taking over. And it was culturally a very disturbing time for an awful lot of people. Mm. And being a prosecutor and prosecuting crimes in that area, yeah, there's standard crimes, you know, kill people and so forth, but um, there's also a measure of degree of how you're going to treat things. And part of it's a political eye on what you think the public will stand, but more importantly, it's what you think is the right thing to do and hope your your public will agree with you. Right. And it, it was a... It was an exhilarating experience. I really enjoyed doing it. Mm. And so, in and so during that time, uh, while you're while you're doing that, what were some of the things that, um, based off of your experience and your position, was there any, was there any uh, specific pieces where you kind of said, you know what, I bet in a few years, this is going to happen, or I bet in a few years this is not. Was there anything that you were 
not surprised or surprised at that you were either right on or wrong with with some of any any ideas of, of predictions on how, well, how say it's funny. Um, the Vietnam War and the um, the hippie culture and drugs mm. were a serious cultural change yeah. and I was not in favor of the war on drugs, mm. even though it came in just as I was state's attorney and, and Richard Nixon's invention of the thing. Um, the war on drugs was a big Republican story. Right. I had studied prohibition and I said, well, this is going to fail. And it's going to do what prohibition always does, which right. is um, provoke more crime than it resolves and more corruption. And uh, so I had a little bit of a tightrope to walk because a fair amount of the, let me put it this way, parents with kids in school, when kids were experiencing a whole new cultural shift had a lot of anxiety and, and rightfully they didn't want their kids taking drugs and they thought some authority should see to it that they don't mm. and since my parents tried to see to it that I didn't do certain things and I defied them I said this isn't going to work <laughs> Uh, you have to involve the kids and you have to get people to think about the future and not go down an alleyway in the past of prohibition that is doomed to fail. Right. Well, many years later, it's clear that it did fail. And the whole political dialogue is about rehabilitation and mental health. Um so, yes, you asked me, am I proud of it? Yeah, I'm, I was right about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think, by and large, the, the people in the county supported me. You know, you have to ride a bicycle down a white strip at high speeds and hope you don't fall off the strip because there's, there's one side that thinks you're absolutely insane that countered it cater to the drug people on the other side that says, and hey, you can't make me, I'm just going to do whatever you say. Yeah. The opposite of, you know. And so I think, and yet you have the prosecution authority. If you want to, you can send people to jail eventually. And uh, so you have to ask yourself, is this where we should be going? And maybe this person, maybe not that person. Um, and yet there's something quite illegal about that. There's a law that says what you're supposed to do. Right. And it's not like you get elected and you have complete authority to ignore the law. So it's a 
delicate balance, I guess in a larger word, I call it justice rather than law. Mm. But those are, those are fascinating experiences and uh, learning how to manage them is what a politician has to do. That's what politics is all about. So it was a training ground for uh, political skills. So was it? Was there anything that um, you know? As you you know, after you after you went out of there, and then you started working on you know, some different boards and committees and stuff. Was there anything that you you picked up later in your career that you wished you had that knowledge or that expertise? while you were the um, Vermont Attorney General? Well, <laughs> as you know, I lost my bid for re-election by 500 votes state. I don't think there's ever been a, a closer yeah. Attorney General. And to answer your question directly, I wish I'd had the skills or luck of Patrick Leahy. <laughs> <laughs> He was a real mentor to me. He's a brilliant politician. And I don't begrudge him that. I think I think um, we need good politicians. And it's a skill like anything else. You can't be a good lawyer or a good doctor or a good TV interviewer without some experience and a, and a point of view and, and a desire to achieve some kind of an outcome that you think is important. Hmm. Um, so I think politics is a very honorable and difficult profession. It's not easy. Right. Um, and, uh, but it takes a lot of stuff, uh, family, money, and other things that aren't always easy to come by. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so talk to us a bit about, you know, after, you know, after this, so, you know, what point, like when you, when you look at, you know, your, your memoir, um, what were some of the, what were some of the things like, as you're putting it together, uh, did you like sh- share it with um, some peers and colleagues that were around you at that time to say, Hey, did I get this right? Does this, because as, as a way with your memory kind of has yeah, rose colored glasses in a way. That's a tough question. I, I found a really good editor, mm. Dirk Van Susteren, who had um, a lot of newspaper experience and actually some lawyers in his family. Um, and the hardest question I had was what to do with personal life. Right. Some of which was... Um, at the very least, uh, disappointing. Mm. You know, I, and he urged me to go ahead and tell that story. It's part of your story. Right. And I hemmed and hawed about it. I said, yes, that is part of my story. If you're going to write a memoir, let's get it all on the table. You were you were being attorney general uh, at the time when you had a marriage that was coming apart through 
very odd circumstances. And, you know, and your wife was about to leave you and you were perfectly happy to have her go. Mm. But you had two kids and a life to kind of pull together and wonder how you got there. It was a time of a lot of introspection. And it required thinking about and to put that into a memoir, I think enriched the book. I think in a way, I refer to Dirk as my therapist. He looked at me and he said, well, Kim, yeah? Why did you do that? Then how did you feel? What, Whatever possessed you, et cetera. You know, I thought, oh, okay, here we go. But I think buried in most lives are incidents like that. Mm. When we look back on them and uh, forget what we can and learn from what we can't, but they're always with us. So uh, since my theme was to tell a story of a life, I said, well, this is a big part of my life. I should put some of that in here. Right. And how much of that did you, as you're writing it down, did you get feedback from your editing friends to say, you know, this reads a little bit too much, like you got to put in some more inner dialogue, like having some of those self-reflections during those moments. Was that a lot of the things you kind of had to add to it as well? Well, I did get feedback. People said, oh, my God, you went through all that? (laughs) I'd feel sorry for myself. Yeah. And they'd say, but it enriches the story. You should keep it there. Right. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it's it's a cliche, but it passed the prologue. Right. Um, when... Uh, when I married, my wife was pregnant by somebody else who I didn't know. Mm. And I had just released a child for adoption. And it was very chaotic. But there we were, as it turns out, in Japan, because I was stationed in Korea at the time. So am I going to send her back? And then, what? you know, it was, was not a happy <laughs> beginning. But the upshot of it was that both children were released for adoption. And many years later, um, I essentially was a force to totally rewrite uh, Vermont's adoption laws. Mm. And I had the skill to do that because I'd worked in the legislature and had personal experience with it. And I think... um, making something good out of out of some things that in the past that weren't very good. I mean, we have all these laws that grow up where people say, oh, God, this happened to me, and I want a law to prevent it from happening to somebody else. Mm. And the adoption story is in many ways the same. And uh, it's... It's very emotional and and uh, but it's very human. Right. You have to get to know people and who they really are, and you have to push through people's facades and the stories they tell to people to try to 
peer accepted. Um, but we all have those stories. We won't share them with everybody. But if you're alive, you're going to have some of those stories. And so I figured, well, that's my life. I should put them in. Mm. Was there any parts as you were writing this, uh, as we said, like you know, your book, you know, came out in yeah this past February, um, over two hundred fifty pages. Was there anything that you know some of your friends that were there were helping you read it say? hey, maybe you should take this part out or maybe you should add more to this or was there any things that you kind of had to, you know, that were part of the manuscript that you kind of had to oh, yeah, there decide? Were, there, sure, there were some very good edits. Yeah. Um, I don't remember any specific things, but clumsy uh, stories or writing or this just doesn't make sense at this point. Right. Get rid of it or put it somewhere else. Yes, of course. Yeah. It was very helpful. Right. Was there were any specific stories that you wanted to keep in that you <laughs> were kind of told to take out? I look. Uh, one of the things about being a lawyer, especially in private practice, is there's confidentiality. <laughs> I'm not going to tell everybody about. What your clients said and did, and so forth. Right. Uh, even though many of them illustrate your views of justice. Right. And as I said um, in my book, being a lawyer in private practice is politics by other means. Mm. Um, it's It's convincing your client about a life changes or courses that may help him or her get where they want to go. And it's also about uh, hopefully convincing judges and other lawyers that there's an area here where we should work together to, you know, to improve what we see as justice together. Mm. And, and so there's a lot of very interesting work that goes on with it. And, uh, and it's often painstaking and time consuming and uh, in a word difficult, but it's, it's work worth doing. Right. That's interesting when you brought that up because there is, so you, you had like maybe some specific stories that you really liked to tell in your private practice, but based off of the fact that, you know, as you say, it's just the, um, you know, that, you know, the, the, the confidentiality piece, even if you fictionalize the names, someone might recognize the story. Is that what you were worried about too? Yeah, I did some fictionalization to tell a story. Right. Um, and I think I point out in the book that I've done that from time to time. Yeah. Um, but the book is not about the ins and outs of private law practice and clients that you've achieved great right. things for. It's mainly about what I regard as achievements in public life. 
And, and so when you put, as you say, it's like, you know, almost one of the themes, as you say, it's, uh, you know, serendipity in a way that you just like, there's things that happen. How much of uh, what would you say to is like uh, if somebody, you know, you know, when people read this, when, when people read your book, uh, what are, do you, do you see, as you say, they're like a, the overall theme itself would be either serendipity or, or, you know, you know, you know, uh, you know, hard work or, or, you know, knowing the right people, what would you say that's like the, the, the right um, yeah. I guess I, I like Teddy Roosevelt's quotes. Um, when somebody offers you a job, he's, can you do that? Say, sure, I can do that. Then you get the job and then you got to figure out how to do it. <laughs> and no idea how to do it. And, uh, but I think that's a spirit with which work should be mm. entertained. I mean, uh, I wouldn't volunteer to do uh, serious surgery, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as a lawyer, I, you know, I never tried murder trial. And, well, I can do that. <laughs> um, and... I did modestly well, right? But um, there wasn't anybody else to do the job, and there you are. So figure it out and do it. <laughs> and, you know, getting hold of the educational establishment in the time of turmoil when I first came to Vermont, right? I mean, I totally made that up. I, they, they thought they should have a lawyer in the education department. But they never had a lawyer. They never knew what a lawyer would do for education. And there was some chit chat that, well, you know, the laws are sort of complicated and aren't working very well. Figure that out. So I went to the library and I looked up education laws and said, this is useless. <laughs> I'm not going to learn anything in the library. They taught you at law school, you go to the library. So I got in my car and I went to every fight I could find about education. Um, whether it was a new school or some uh, school board that was embattled or uh, state aid fights or, or whatever they were. Right. And I found, not surprisingly, that people always cited the law as the reason why they were taking the position they did. And a lot of it was nonsense because the law didn't say that at all. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was safe ground for combatants to say the law required me to do this. Yeah. So what I found was that This kind of vocabulary was an excuse for power struggles between the various educational establishments, superintendents, principals, teachers, students, parents. And what I figured was needed, well, let's, let's sit down and figure out who should be doing what right. to make, and what's the object of this? Well. Harvey Scribner, the commissioner, was a brilliant guy. He said, well, Kim, 
everybody tell you education is for the kids. Well, it isn't. It's for the people that make money out of it. Mm. Teachers, school board members that get prestige. Uh, those are the people that the system is geared up to serve. That sounded sort of cynical to me, but I said, well, let's have a look at how all this works. Mm. It still comes down to what decisions should be made at what level and by whom and how, and how much democracy and how much autonomy and how much autocracy do you need? And so I put together a revision of the governance sections and the people in the legislature liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of years later, we had a complete revision of the educational governance section. And um, had a compliment from a former education commissioner. He said, I loved reading Title 16. That's where the education was. I could read it. It was clear. And I knew what it meant. And I could <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I got that one right. <laughs> and so I got, I got interested in not only what the law is, but if you don't like it, fix it. You know, right. You're not stuck in a in a past. All laws are created over some different social time and milieu of what seems important. Mm. And those change and they get obsolete and don't work. So fix them. Right. Yeah. And it's a very, very pragmatic job. When I got to be attorney general, I did a complete rewrite of the criminal code. I said, the problem with law enforcement isn't whether cops are tough or, or not tough. It's that the laws are so obscure um, and the different elements of offenses, nobody knows what they mean anymore. Hmm. They're old and we've got to go read case law for a century ago to find out what the hell they mean. And I said, well, let's, let's just clean this up. And as I put in the book, you know, I had a, and that took a big part of my first year as attorney general, a complete rewrite of the criminal law isn't something to be done lightly. Mm. But I got it done and got it in front of the legislature, got it through the House, and it got to the Senate, and people wanted to tack capital punishment back into it. And we hadn't had capital punishment in Vermont for years, but they wanted to reinstate it. Mm. And I I couldn't get a... <coughs> Gary Buckley, who was in the senator and later, I think, uh, uh, lieutenant governor, was a big believer and was helping me out. And <laughs> we were stalled and it was... It was uh, adjournment time, and we weren't going to get this bill through. He proposed what he called the three-eyed witness <laughs> proposal. But okay, we'll go for we'll go we'll, we'll approve capital punishment, but it'll have to be observed by three eyewitnesses. 
So we called it the three-eyed witness. <laughs> and it wasn't going anywhere. It was a total sham. So I looked at Gary and I said, well, this is a year's work, but let's pull this bill. Yeah. I don't want to have anything on it that has capital punishment back into it. I don't want that on my record. Right. And uh, so we pulled the bill and it died. And uh, as I pointed out, I didn't get a chance to do it again. Yeah. And years later, a lot of the ideas got incorporated in the criminal law piece by piece. Um, but, you know, I mean, something I thought needed to be done, and I didn't want to be just part of tough on crime. I said, let's be realistic about how we're fighting crime and what we can do about it. Mm. Not just scream at people to bang more heads harder, you know. It, it just didn't seem to me like a productive way to conduct the world. And lo and behold, guess what's happening today? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't like I was talking nonsense. It just took <laughs> a few years for people to understand that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> so Kim, we can let's let's just um you know show people here the, your uh, your book. So they can get this if they want to through Rootstock Publishing. They could they could buy it directly, correct? Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon, and any bookstore will get it for you if, you, if they don't have it. Okay, okay, and 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 as I say, so it's 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 uh, so it's over 200, 252 pages. Um, just came out, so it came out this past February, and. And 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 I want to say too, and I, I love the fact that you already have some of this advanced praise on there. Is that something that Rootstock helped you with? That I have what? That you have advanced praise. You have people that have already. Well, those are called blurbs. You know. Okay. You send it to your readers and ask them, "Can you say something nice about your book?" Okay. And they get put. I don't know what you're reading. I think could be in the frontispiece somewhere. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm proud of the fact that people were so supportive of it. Mm. Yeah. You know, I honestly think it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. And one of my friends who's reading said, I like this. It's just like I'm sitting down talking with you about it. I can, I can feel like I was there. Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, this was great. So, so I'm going to say, so uh, Kim, I'm really excited to read this. As I was, we said before we went on the air, I have a, um, you know, and also being a native Vermonter, I have a sense of nostalgia of, of you know, of the time when you were when you were there, the the point of that that transition that Vermont was going through. I mean, you were, you were, you were, you were there for, at a at a such an integral time in Vermont history, and it's and it's amazing, as you said, to to read the book and you're kind of seeing, you're kind of getting a you know, front row seat on history is there. So it's uh, so. Congratulations on the on the memoir. Um, and I'm excited to to you know see. Uh, I'm excited to you know 
you know, read more about it and, and, and read it myself and uh, being able to share. So I would say too, for anybody that's listening or watching this, who, who is from Vermont, a native Vermont or has family in Vermont, this is a great gift to give anybody who wants to add this to their, to their Vermont bookshelf. Well, thank you, Marnie. Yeah. I think it's a story for somebody told me high school students should read this book because so much of life, you make it up as you go along. Get in and do it. Right. And who knows where it'll take you. Exactly. So like this, as you say, this is this is great for the, the people who like to read about Vermont. And as you say, it's also a great, it's, it's a great ability for, as you say, for, 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 you know, like a, a high school or a kid, you know, to, it's inspirational. Like you, as you say, it's like, it's a point where you can, uh, you, it's a point where you can read and kind of take the stories with it and take some of those themes with it and, um, and realize that it's, uh, that you have a, a really great journey. The book yeah. takes you on. So the one thing we haven't covered is, it ends with corruption in the state police. Mm. And that took years to unravel. Right. And uh, in my view, that's why I lost the election because I couldn't penetrate it. Right. But that's another story. I understood it. I just couldn't get my hands around it. Is there going to be a part two? Are you going to you start working on a no, second book? I've, I've written what I've written. There's other, another author that's picking it up and okay. a little further. But uh, it's a story of public policy, public life, opportunity, and pitfalls. And right. That's the world we live in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, well thank you very much, Kim. This has been a genuine pleasure to... Uh, to talk with you and uh, and I look forward to watching I, lo I look forward to, uh, to 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 reading this book it looks exciting well good Bernie thanks for having me on I I hope that uh, some of your viewers will pick up the book and I figured out the other day I, I can make three dollars a copy so I hope you buy a lot of them <laughs> So I don't know. Is are you are you like are you in an upstairs office? I'm just looking at. Yeah, I can kind of see this the slant to the to the ceiling there. It looks like it's an upstairs yeah. office. Yeah, yeah. It's important to get a different slant on things. <laughs> <laughs>